Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath, and I'm grateful to all of you for joining the OSHA 3030. This is a program for those of you who are new to the program and new to our community. Uh, we do this every 30 days. Uh, in about 30 minutes, we try and cover a developing area of occupational safety and health law, or OSHA law. And we've been doing this for over six years. We are in our seventh year now, and somewhere around our 70 fourth episode. And it's been going strong in large part because of the loyalty of listeners like you, but much more importantly, because you have been kind enough to forward the good word about the OSHA 3030 on to your colleagues at within your organization and at other organizations and, and have spread the word about the OSHA 3030 so that more and more people can benefit from the program. So the next time you get an email invitation to register for the next OSHA 3030, please forward it on to at least three people. If you've already done so in prior months, thank you very much. And please do it again for three more uh, so that more people can, can get the benefit out of the program. New members of the OSHA 3030 community are the lifeblood of the program and will ensure that the program continues to go strong for many years. Uh, so please uh, take that message to heart, that request to heart, and forward on the invitation to three, at least three other people who are safety and health professionals or in-house counsel who are responsible for safety and health at your organization or at organizations in your community or industry. So let me first start by introducing myself. As I said, I'm Manish Rath. I'm an attorney here in the OSHA law practice at Keller and Heckman. I'm in our Washington, D.C. office. I've been doing this for almost 25 years, and i got to say I still love OSHA law now as much as I did when I first started in the area. Uh, and I'm joined today by my colleague, John Gustafson, who is one of our OSHA attorneys who also practices in other areas of law here at Cowan Heckman. John, thank you very much for joining us, and welcome. Thank you. So, John, we have a great topic today, but I should say that, as I mentioned before, we've, we've done this for over six years, and all of the topics we've covered are found on our website. And, so, and some of them are still as instructive now as they were when we first put them up. And so, so our members of our community can go to our website and pick through any number of uh, over 70 different topics in the field of OSHA law, and they're all found at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Our topic today involves a case uh, involving an employer named uh, Angelica Textile Services, and the topic generally relates to when it is and is not appropriate to issue a repeat citation under the OSH Act. And so what we're going to do, I think what we ought to do first is talk about the facts in the Angelica Textile Services decision that came out from the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission. And then, just to make sure everyone's caught up, we ought to talk about the basics of law as regards repeat citations. This is a classification uh, called a repeat violation. And, and then we, we can get into uh, an analysis of the Review Commission's decision in the Angelica Textile case uh, and its impact on employers' ability to um, manage their risk of repeats and to lower the risk of, of getting a repeat. And then finally, as we always do, we ought to finish up with practical takeaway items that our listeners in the OSHA 3030 community can take away from this program uh, in our final section that we always include what employers should do. So with that said, let's start with a, a discussion of the facts in the Angelica Textiles case. 
to, to begin with, Angelica Textile Services is an employer uh, in the laundry services space. They are primarily engaged in uh, providing laundry services for at the commercial level for mostly healthcare, hospitals, nursing homes, etc. And they bring in the bed linens and they launder them and then they re-deliver them to their clients. And to do so, they have facilities throughout the New York City region. This one in a town called Ballston Spa, New York, which was somewhere near Saratoga Springs, uh, New York, in upstate New York, up the Hudson River Valley. This particular commercial laundry facility, it's rather huge, and to, to manage the volume of laundry that they, that they have contracted for, they've constructed a very large uh, facility with large laundering machines. To give you an idea, these are long tunnels uh, of, that laundry goes through. And the washing portion is eight specific modules that are adjoined to each other to form a long tunnel. And these are called combined uh, batch or continuous batch washers or CBWs. And laundry goes into the entrance of this tunnel of eight modules of washing, washing machines. And they're transported by conveyor. And the conveyor is driven by a long screw auger. Uh, and the laundry goes through one module, then another. And uh, introduced into this system, you'll find water, hot water, chemical uh, wash detergents, and then, uh, and then the laundry continues to be churned through by auger. Uh, in order to deliver steam or chemical wash or uh, water, there are inside this tunnel injections of, of those materials, uh, and that's operated by pneumatic, pneumatically operated valves. The screw auger itself is operated by an electric motor, which is in turn powered by steam. The steam is generated by gas-fired uh, uh, boilers. And at the end of this long tunnel of combined uh, continuous batch washers, the laundry is deposited onto another conveyor and it's delivered into a... Uh, a, a it's delivered into an extractor, which is essentially like the spin cycle of your laundry machine. This extractor uh, uses centrifugal force to expel water, and so the expulsion of water takes place uh, by spinning the laundry, and then it's deposited into a bucket, which is on a rail, uh, and that is sent to essentially a dryer, which is uh, powered. It, it, the mechanism is hot air, which is supplied by gas-powered flames. And so, so the laundry then goes through the dryer, and then it's deposited in another hopper and folded. Uh, well, actually, then it goes to a press, and then it's folded and uh, delivered to his client. So that gives you an idea of the fairly complex process. But it's important to, to go through it because you have to visualize what's happening here for the purpose of the lockout-tagout standard as well as the, as well as the uh, uh, confined spaces standard because this long tunnel is big enough for a human to enter into and is essentially a confined space. So these are two standards that operate for Angelica textile services. And uh, I, I think it's also important to point out that to de-energize any of this, you're looking at de-energizing multiple sources of hazards. There's the chemical wash that has to be de-energized. There's water, there's steam, there's the pneumatic ener uh, energy that operates the valves. Uh, and then there's the gas-fired uh, elements of hot water as well as uh, the dryer. 
uh, and steam that are gas-fired, and there's electricity that goes into the system, both for the valve operation and the monitors and the gauges, but electricity also drives the screw auger. And I might be missing something else, and that, that gives you an idea of how complicated this is. And all of that needs to be locked out before any servicing or any uh, maintenance or any, uh, anybody can enter the confined space. So OSHA came in and inspected this Boston Spa New York facility. It issued 14 citations. Uh, ten, of those, 10 of those were serious citations and four were repeat citations. So those four repeat citations were based on four of the serious citations and those four violation types had also happened at a previous facility. Uh, In Edison, New Jersey, I think. Right, that's correct. So uh, the employer, Angelica Textile Services, took this, took these citations to an administrative law judge, and the judge threw out all but two of the citations. Uh, and the the employer was cited on many different OSHA standards, but the two that for which citations were affirmed were, as Monish, as Monish you mentioned, the uh, lockout tagout standard and the permit required confined spaces standard. And just to review what both of those are, the lockout tagout standard uh, requires practices and procedures that are necessary to disable machinery and prevent the release of hazardous energy uh, while employees are performing service and maintenance to the uh, machinery. Right, or anytime they're going to access any space that the un unexpected energization could create a hazard for. That's correct. And the the permit required confined spaces standard, and I'm, I may just say PRCS, uh, addresses the practices and procedures needed to protect employees uh, from the hazards of entry into a hazardous confined space. And those include both energy hazards and materials hazards. So uh, to review, the lockout tagout protects against energy release uh, during servicing and maintenance. The PRCS standard protects against uh, energy and materials hazards, primarily uh, as as uh, in regards to entry into a hazardous confined space. Right, any hazard associated with entering a confined space, atmospheric conditions, uh, the the difficulty of exiting it uh, as well. Uh, but you're right; a component of that is clearly going to be. Uh, being in the confined space during the unexpected energization of, of something that's hazardous. So, so most of the citations were thrown out here, and the Secretary of Labor appealed the decision on two of the, uh, two of the repeat citations, uh, and specifically on those two repeat citations for which the, the predicate underlying two serious citations were affirmed. Yeah, that's right. And I think that that's uh, interesting because the the agency still prevailed on, on a couple of serious citations, and then they appealed it to the Review Commission on two repeats that were vacated. I find that fact alone to be incredibly interesting. Uh, so what happens next is, and, and by the way, I should point out that, that OSHA came into this facility on an inspection merely based on the fact that uh, the 
the Boston Spa New York facility was designated as a high hazard as being in a high hazard industry. And this inspection is one that they kept open for a long time. They they opened it. And, and this whole story, by the way, takes place a long time ago. Uh, they entered the facility under an inspection in June of 2008, and they didn't conclude their investigation until late September of 2008. So they they really kept this investigation open for quite a long time, several months. And, and so... So now we're back at the Review Commission on the question of whether or not those two vacated repeats should have been classified as repeats. And I guess it's important to get make sure everyone's caught up on the repeat. So OSHA has a number of citation classifications, a non-serious citation classification, a serious uh, repeat, a willful, failure to abate. And these are varied by the severity or the probability of uh, some some outcome uh, hazard ha- the risk or, or sorry the hazardous outcome and the uh, ensuing possibility of harm to a person uh, and they're also divided by uh, the penalty amount the proposed penalty amount and particularly where it regards non-serious and serious uh, versus the proposed penalty amount maximums for repeats or failure to abates or willfuls so easily uh, ten times the amount. Uh, for a repeat as opposed to a serious in terms of their maximums. And so significant differences in the proposed penalty amounts. But there's also implications outside of the penalty uh, because somebody who has a repeat or a willful may find that they have difficulty uh, in the future in obtaining contracts or in their uh, experience ratings for for insurance purposes. And so so this is something that needs to be managed very carefully. I mean, I think one of the morals of the story, anytime you get it, a first non-repeat or a first citation is that it's merely the predicate of a repeat later on. And so you really have to make a goal line defense kind of intensity at the first citation so that you don't have to worry about or you may not find yourself in the position of finding yourself faced with a repeat. So that's the first thing I'd say when trying to make sure everyone's level set on this concept of a repeat allegation of a classification of a violation. so when OSHA, when the OSHA Act uh, calls for these classifications, or when OSHA identified these classifications, they really uh, identified them based on a, a repeat is a repeat of a, an existing uh, finding of a violation. And about 40 years ago, the Review Commission clarified that you'll know a repeat from a non-repeat in a second uh, inspection because the second alleged violation is substantially similar to the final disposition or final order against the employer uh, for an alleged violation that had happened in the past. And I'll point out in the field inspection uh, reference manual, OSHA had opined that they're they're not bound by any time limit, but they typically had a look back at the time of three years, now five, uh, for looking at prior violations that would constitute uh, a predicate for a repeat. So, so this question of that, that was outlined by the Review Commission in 1979 in a case called uh, Potlatch Corporation of whether or not the second alleged violation is substantially similar to the first alleged violation still is, although maybe a little bit clearer, still needs further clarification as to what's substantially similar. And uh, there's been a series of cases where both the Review Commission, subsequent Review Commissions, as well as uh, federal courts have had to struggle with this. 
ultimately, it comes down to whether or not the second alleged violation uh, is an alleged description of hazards that are substantially similar to hazards that were alleged to have occurred in the first instance, maybe several years earlier. Preferably, from OSHA's perspective, at the same facility, unless they can allege that within the same organization, this was substantially similar uh, hazards uh, being alleged with substantially similar equipment or processes or uh, the facility substantially similarly set up. And so unfortunately, the result is a larger corporation is always more vulnerable to a first violation allegation than a small corporation because they can be nabbed for a alleged repeat at any of their facilities nationwide and for any employee or for any size uh, facility. And so the statistical odds are much, much greater thereby by, in, by their increased size of getting uh, hit with an alleged repeat in years to come than a small company. That's just the, the law of numbers. So so there's been a back and forth as to what substantially similar means. And in 1998, uh, an employer, Caterpillar, as a matter of fact, uh, took a case all the way up to the Seventh Circuit. And the Seventh Circuit said, you'll know whether something is substantially similar or not by looking at the following factor. If after the first violation, the trier fact should examine whether or not the employer through their omission or act, indicates a failure to learn from that first experience, then you'll know whether or not that would be, in, that would be indicative of whether or not the second violation should be categorized as a repeat or not a repeat. Uh, seven years later, in the D.C. Circuit, uh, the D.C. Circuit following the Seventh Circuit's decision in a case involving Walmart said that the first violation should have put the employer on notice that they needed to take some kind of preventative con uh, action in order to pre prevent a second violation. And if there's evidence of that kind of notice and the presence or absence of preventative action, then you'll know whether or not the agency should properly characterize that as a repeat. One thing that's clear in the successive line of cases that you don't see is an examination of whether the employer acted in good faith or not. The preventative action needs to be complete enough that it shows that the employer tried to take preventative action to prevent a repetition of the first alleged violative circumstance. It does not have to be perfect in its preventative action, but it has to have been preventative in its comprehensiveness. Uh, but merely acting in good faith is not enough to show that they took enough preventative action. John? That, I think, is a good description of, uh, given a basics of the repeat violation generically, the Review Commission took all of that and applied it in the Angelica case. Right. So the commission, the commission rejected the Secretary's appeal and did so by affirming the, only the two predicate serious citations and affirmed the, the ALJ's decision that there were no repeat violations. And the, the reason here was because the employer improved both its lockout, tagout, and its PRCS uh, procedures since their violation uh, at the Edison, New Jersey facility. So with respect to the lockout, tagout violations, uh, 
in the Edison, New Jersey citations, there were both site-specific and machine-specific issues. And I, I want to make sure we get you out on time here so I won't go through the entire laundry list of issues. But in the current citation, uh, in assessing the lockout-tagout procedures at the Boston Spa uh, facility, the commission found that the procedures were indeed site-specific and that now the only failures were to address the specific number and locations of the valves that employees uh, are required to lock out. Right. So in Edison, New Jersey, at that time, it was fundamentally a confined space uh, citation or set of citations, and they didn't have any lockout, tagout written procedures that were machine-specific. And so they went, uh, the folks at Angelica went back after that citation, set of citations, and they developed their lockout, tagout procedure. It was fairly comprehensive. Then when they get cited at the Boston Spa facility, the citation isn't alleging an absence of a lockout-tagout standard. So it's a totally different allegation. Now they're saying, yeah, we know you've got a written lockout-tagout procedure, but we could have written it a little bit better than you. And so, and the standard for lockout-tagout written procedures is that they do have to be specific enough to educate the employee how to go about locking out. And the other citation, by the way, at Boston Spa was the verification once you've locked it. How do you verify it before you do the work that exposes you to potential hazards that, in fact, it's locked out? And as you say, the thing that they, they believed Angelica was missing was, yeah, you've got a procedure for how to do this. But when you say make sure you shut off the valves, you needed to identify specifically which valve. And you didn't have a map of the device of the long tunnel uh, on the instructions, and you didn't, on the actual machinery, you didn't label the valves uh, in, on the real valve. And so there's no way for the employee to know which valve to shut off based on connecting the two, the, the written instructions to the real machine. And Manish, you raise an interesting point that is a, a, a whole other topic, which is that a failure of lockout-tagout procedures in many instances is a per se failure of permit required confined spaces um, because it is the energy component, uh, whereas confined space procedures require both energy and materials. Right. A confined space policy should refer to the lockout-tagout policy where necessary. That's right. So here you see, as, I, as you and I were talking about, the, the second allegation is about a very different violation than the first one in Edison, New Jersey. And it, it doesn't, for that reason, seem to fit that standard that we were talking about in the courts where it showed a failure to learn from prior experience. Exactly, exactly. And that's what the commission really focused on. And quickly with the PRCS violation at the Edison, New Jersey site, um, the, the uh, commission, excuse me, OSHA found an entire, uh, th that their PRCS procedures did not, or barely addressed the hazards and the uh, material, material and energy hazards and the entry into these uh, large, complex machines. Uh, whereas in, at the Boston Spa facility, uh, the commission found that the employer substantially addressed many of those deficiencies. And, uh, as, as a result of the Edison, New Jersey inspection. Right, so they, they learned from their uh, prior mistake. Right. And in summing up their decision, uh, they, they said that previously at the Edison facility, 
the employer had a nearly complete failure to comply, whereas the current violations are only minimal. Uh, they, they further noted that with these uh, facility, with these standards in which standards that require employers to identify and uh, address standards on their own, OSHA get grants more flexibility than with standards that only require cookie cutter compliance measures on the part of the employer. Finally, right, a performance standard versus a specification standard. Correct, and and finally, the the commission said that uh, the employer learned from their experience. Yeah, that's so right. That There's was significant. Nothing that the review committee that the agency presented that suggested that Angelica got hit with a citation in Edison, New Jersey, and then failed to to try and fully correct it, even if imperfectly they did take substantial measures to try and correct it. I think that's, that's right. right. Uh, this, this is, by the way, uh, John, as you pointed out, a review commission decision that was uh, based on three commissioners. But uh, on the question of the repeat, there was only two who believed that this was not an example where OSHA had made its case for a repeat. There was a dissenting opinion. And you were quite right to point that out to me when we were chatting about this case earlier. Uh, the dissenting opinion uh, by Commissioner Atwood suggests that, that you know, look, when you look at the same standard being cited twice, that that's, the, that's a per se repeat and that th it doesn't matter whether or not the employer exhibited good faith in trying to correct the problem, that that shouldn't be a part of uh, the calculus of decision-making as whether well it's a repeat. The majority, however, said, well, we never said that this was a question of an exhibition of good faith. In fact, we never used the term anywhere in our opinion. We would agree that good faith is not one of the factors in determining a repeat. But they disagreed with the dissenting commissioner that that it in any way can be a repeat, can be defined by whether or not the same standard is being cited twice. And they point out if that were true, then citing the same standard for substantially similar hazards, the phrase substantially similar hazards would not have any meaning. It would be superfluous. That's and right. so it must be that that phrase has some additional important meaning. That's a, a basic principle of statutory or regulatory construction. And so we have to afford it some meaning. And in order to do so, that means that you have to look at the specific facts and circumstances and the hazards associated with these two citations. And they clearly were highly dissimilar, not sim substantially similar. Uh, so I think it's important to talk about that dissent uh, before getting on to what we think are the, the impacts of this decision. Yeah. So this decision does impact uh, repeat classification um, and, and certainly has some bearing on the significance of employer efforts to come into compliance after a first uh, citation. Um, so one thing that the commission uh, really emphasized here is that a violation of the same standard is not automatically a repeat violation, and I think that's what you were really uh, talking about there when you, when you emphasize the meaning uh, of the statute and the meaning of the substantially similar phrase, Monish. Uh, and, and another effect is that the uh, burden, OSHA's burden to establish repeat violations is a little bit more uh, defined as a result of this decision. OSHA has to prove more than just that the subsequent standard 
uh, that the subsequent violation is of the same standard. Uh, and finally, a, a significant takeaway here is that this is a pro-employer decision that the Secretary of Labor has not appealed uh, to the federal courts, and as such, it will stand as commission precedent, uh, at least until a much later uh, uh, commission decision that challenges these these views. Right. So, John, what, what do we think employers should do in light of the Angelica case? Well, I, I think to begin with, it's important for employers to examine their lockout, tagout procedures and their confined space uh, pol uh, policy, make sure that they're written, make sure that they're clear, and when you look at them that uh, you know that a worker, when following those procedures, knows exactly what to do and where it should be done and how to verify that they've done it effectively. I think it's also important to make sure that there's documentation that uh, that goes through your I'm going to jump to the to the third bullet when you when you train your employees on it uh, on your lockout policies as well as your confined spaces policies. You got to document that process, uh, preserve the training materials, preserve the testing materials and testing results, and uh, and if there's performance tests, which I think is really a, a critical when it comes to lockout tagout, that you you have some kind of process for documenting what was the on the performance test and how that employee did. And if there's checklists that you use, uh, both in training as well as in actual practice, to preserve those as part of the training materials. Uh, I think, John, you're quite right to note that uh, when an employer gets hit with a citation and it becomes a final order, that the, any remedial steps that the employer takes, they need to, they need to document the efforts that they've taken and why they think that that's sufficient uh, so that they may preserve a re written record when they maybe perhaps need to defend themselves later against a repeat classification, uh, especially now under the Angelica case, which I think has given us language that we haven't seen before or articulated quite the same way as we've seen in this decision, which is what makes it such an important case. I think it'll, I think it'll get cited for years to come by employment, employer side OSHA attorneys like us for employers, particularly who have documented the changes they've made after a citation. Uh, I think it's also important to, to, from time to time, audit your lockout, tagout procedures as well as uh, audit your training procedures, and that also goes for confined spaces. Uh, I'll note that, it, that employers who use outside counsel to manage or actually conduct their audit uh, processes will be able to maintain a large fraction of their audit under an attorney-client privilege. They have to take a lot of very rigorous steps to do so, of course, but but a portion of that audit process will nevertheless, if they've done it right, be preservable under the attorney-client privilege. And of course, there will be parts that won't because some information has to be handed to the folk who have to actually implement the action items that come out of an audit. Uh, and I think those are critical facts uh, that, I'm sorry, critical steps that employers can take. I'll also point out that, uh, as I said before, that every time you get a non-repeat, a first serious or non-serious citation item, you should be mindful as an employer that that is the predicate of a future repeat. And so you need to defend it very carefully. And you need to make the decision as to whether to defend it. And if you're settling to how the settlement uh, should be characterized and how the settled alleged violation should be characterized in order to manage your risks of repeat citations 
more effectively. And if you have any questions about that, what that means, by all means, you're welcome to contact John, me, or anyone else on the OSHA team, David Cervati, Larry Halpern, because that is one of the more important takeaway items. I can't emphasize that one enough, is that when you are considering whether or not to contest a citation or even whether to contest it, the outcome of that decision is going to have a great impact on you in years to come in the form of repeats. So with that said, you can catch more OSHA information on our Twitter and LinkedIn uh, accounts. We also uh, send this particular series, the OSHA 3030, out as a podcast. So if you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel to, or app to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath, you will get it subscribed and it will automatically come into your device. So on those occasions where you can't sit at your desk for a webinar and you can't go at, from your desk to our library to catch it when it's posted there, you can catch it when you're on the go and listen to the OSHA 3030 on on the go as a podcast, and I strongly encourage you to do so. If you do so, will you please like the podcast afterwards, rate it, because that's how that podcast will get more searchable for others. And so just liking or rating it uh, positively brings it up the search results when people try and find it as a podcast. Uh, likewise, we have LinkedIn uh, that we use for news services. The next OSHA 3030 will be put on on Wednesday, always on Wednesday, on November 28th at 1 p.m., that's the week after Thanksgiving, I believe. And so hopefully you'll all be back and be able to tune in. And if not, of course, uh, you can catch it as a podcast or on our website. And, and when you get that invitation for the November 20th, 28th OSHA 3030, please send it on to three more safety and health professionals or in-house counsel responsible for safety and health. Our sister programs, the TOSCA 3030, FIFRA 3030, and REACH 303030 are uh, also available uh, at khlaw.com. Tosca 3030 on November 14th, the, the Reach 3030 on December 12th, and we will announce the dates for the next FIFRA 3030 as it comes up. Uh, we are thankful to all of you at the OSHA 3030 community for staying tuned for another episode. I thank you, John Gustafson, here at Keller Heckman, for joining me for this episode of the OSHA 3030. And until next month, when we see you again, stay safe. <laughs>